0: Rarity ones, down the back. Okay, so uh, Luca has kindly offered to let everybody play with the grinder afterwards as well. So if you want to do that, we'll see how that goes. You ready to go? There's still some seats up here at the front if you want to come up and pile up. There's still some seats up here, if you want to move up. OK. Right, OK, so we're going to kick things off again. And um, yeah, so I'm delighted to have uh, Steve Layton here, who is a co-owner of 3 and also uh, owns and runs has been coffee in the UK. And um, it's always a, yeah, it's really Great to hear Steve talk about coffee and how he sources it and and his passion that he has for it. So a round of applause, Steve Layton.
1: Yeah, we like chanting. Chanting's good. Um, Yeah, as Colin said, my name is Steve Layton and um, co-owner of 3FE and also of uh, Has Been Coffee, which is based in in, uh, Stafford in England. So my presentation today is going to be a little bit about what we do. For, has been, a lot about what we do for 3FE, um, and um, also about how we source our coffee. So really important of, uh, of how, we, how we buy. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit before I start about who I am, because does anybody know who I am here? Have, raise your hands if you've kind of met me or know of me. Good, because then it means I have to talk to the people that don't. Um, So, um, I started in coffee in 2003. No, well, actually, I'm going to rewind a bit further, actually. I started in 2000. Uh, Not many people know I owned a coffee shop. I am the worst barista in the world, and I was probably the worst coffee shop owner in the world, too. But it was a way of me getting into coffee. I'd always had an interest and a passion. At seven years old, I kind of made two weird decisions. Uh, One of them was I decided I wanted to be a prison officer because I watched the comedy Porridge. Um, It's not really the best way to make a career choice. The other one was I wanted a filter coffee maker for Christmas. Um, I pestered my mom so much, and she was such a lovely, kind parent that she actually gave in to me and did buy me a filter coffee maker as a seven-year-old. My reason for this was there was a shop in Wolverhampton called Snapes. Now, Snapes was like stepping back in time. It was oak panels on the wall, it was brown paper. An old man Snape had a roaster down in the cellar and he used to roast in the cellar and you'd have all this smoke coming up into the street. It, you couldn't even make it up, it was like going back in time. And I was this seven year old kid going, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? What's that? Why are you doing that? And I just used to hang around and pester him a lot. From this I got a real love of coffee. It was a very basic love of coffee, but I liked it when it was fresh. I liked the idea of roasting and I liked the process. Fast forward to 13, 14, and I found girls and beer. Um the beer was a little bit later, but the girls were definitely at 13. I thought, I don't care about coffee. So I kind of stopped giving a damn about it. And that was right up until um I was around about 21, and i got a mortgage and I'd got a baby on the way. Not physically a baby on the way but my wife had a baby on the way and I had to take a second job and I was working nights and I used to work in this petrol station and nights and I used to kind of make coffee up in my cafetiere, and all the local police used to come and kind of drink coffee with me because it was somewhere to come and get a decent coffee and I realized that when the police were in the police station with me people who wanted to rob me didn't want to do it quite as much so this was kind of like coffee's giving me something here so then I started to kind of buy green beans and roast them myself in a frying pan at home. Kind of got a bit obsessed about it. In the meantime, I get employed by the prison service. Porridge won. Got there. A week into it, realized I absolutely detested being a prison officer. I was, the, again, the worst prison officer in the world. He's like, can you stop fighting, please? That's really bad. And um, that's going to give me paperwork. So, but again, on nights, I used to find that coffee kind of got me through. To the point of I used to roast in a frying pan while I was on nights because I was a really good roaster, look at me. Um, And then one night I decided, actually this sucks, I don't like being a prison officer. So then I came up with has-been, so anyway that's a little bit about where I come from. So I'm going to talk about sourcing green coffee and you know what, some people kind of believe that you have to kind of crawl through mud to go and find great coffee, that you have to go hunting with a big gun, like look at me, I'm going to go and find coffee in the jungle. or you need to do lots of detective work and do you know what it's actually not that difficult but one thing that does kind of matter is size size matters when you're going to source coffee because if you're fat steve you can go out and you can really spend lots of money because i'm a big man i've got loads of money and i can buy lots but if you're skinny steve he doesn't have so much money and same with the roaster size and the capacity that you have now if i'm a producer And you're coming to me saying, I want to buy direct trade from you. How much do you want to buy? Ten sacks. It's like, that really doesn't work for the producer. They're not interested. Um, But if you go and you say, I want a container, then all of a sudden their ears prick up and they want to help and they want to give you great coffee. You get first choice of the things that you want to do because it's not just about paying, it's how big your wallet is. This matters when we're buying coffee for 3FE. So, I source all of the green coffee for 3FE. The Pizzi and uh, Simon and um, uh, Monica uh, all our roasters now and they roast it. They make it go brown. Round of applause for the roasters because they are awesome. <laughs> but my job is to go out and find coffee, not crawling through mud though. But without the size of has-been been being able to buy, then 3 fe wouldn't be held to have the amazing coffees that they have. And vice versa, it gives us better buying power when we're going out there because I'm also buying uh, for the business here. So I'm going to talk through some ways that you can buy coffee. Of course, you should come to the Fumbly and buy your coffee because it's the very best place to do so. But there are three very basic ways. Now, there are others, but I'm kind of breaking this down into a talk that will last for half an hour, not half a day. So um, you look at importers. Importers are important. We look at exporters. And as I've already talked about, a little bit about direct trade. So, I want to talk about importers, the evil coffee people. Because these are middlemen. We don't like middlemen. Middlemen take money from those lovely, kind producers at Origin. What about the baby children in Africa? We've got to not give it to the importers. We've got to give it to the people at Origin. Evil. They really are ironic, I promise I know they're bad. Um, we also have exporters. And I kind of like to look at these guys as the batmen of coffee because there's a bit of good in them. They're good people, but they're middlemen. Oh, they're evil. <laughs> um, they add some services, so we don't mind paying them, but we know that they're going to be ripping off the producers because it's not direct trade. Because direct trade's awesome. And then... Of course, we have direct trade, which is the only way to heaven. Um, If you are a coffee buyer, if you do not buy from direct trade, you are an evil person, you are exploiting people at origin, and you're a bad, bad man. Direct trade is the only thing you can do. As you might kind of guess, I don't necessarily mean all of these things. Um, So what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through some examples of buying from importers, exporters, and direct trade. and how. This can be good and bad, how we can actually take different things away. So we're going to find out which one is best. Because there must be an answer. It's got to be direct trade, I think. So I'm going to start off by talking about importers. Um, And we're going to go through the examples of how they can work. We're going to get there. So I'm going to start off with the coffee for me that made me realize how amazing specialty coffee can be. The guy on the picture there is called Gabriel Carvalho Diaz. Um, He does have a restraining order out on me. I am not allowed to go within a hundred meter because I, like some people like pop stars, like One Direction. Ah! I like Gabriel because he's a really cool guy. Uh, I was actually on the farm two weeks ago and um, he's become a really, really good friend. He'll reply to my emails as long as I don't touch. And, um, He, uh, this coffee I cupped in 2003 when I was just beginning to roast professionally as has been and I I knew about cupping, look at me, I can, oh that tastes of uh, chocolate, chocolate, yeah that tastes of that, and you know up until that point I kind of was bluffing, like I didn't know what the heck I was doing because I didn't have the vocabulary, I didn't have the experience, I didn't have the knowledge, I was just starting in the industry. But I remember cupping this coffee. I remember exactly where I was. I remember what time of night it was. In fact, I even phoned home to my wife and I was like, I've just cupped this coffee and it tasted. It was like, it was not just chocolate, it was milk chocolate and it was nutty and it was delicious. She's like, You always say that, Steve. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, I'll be home later. Bye. And that was my first moment where I really understood that I could taste. I had the ability to. Now, this comes from an importer, it comes from uh, an importer called Macanta. But I know exactly how much Gabrielle gets paid. We actually have a two-year rolling contract with him for exclusivity in the UK uh, and in Ireland, so we're buying consistently. We have contracts in place. We know how much he's getting. He's really happy with this deal because he produces seven containers of coffee. I can't buy seven containers of coffee, but actually he really likes that we care and we like and we talk about him and we talk about his farm. So, is this a good or an evil example of an importer? Well of course it's a good example. This is an importer adding value along the chain and actually making use of something and giving me something for my money as that middleman. They're useful people who help me get the best out of that relationship because then they sell coffee to United States, into Europe, into Australia, and make sure Gabrielle's looked after but also that I'm looked after. But for every ying, there has to be a yang. Uh, And I'm gonna talk about this guy, which is uh, Camillo. Uh, The farm is called Colombian Santuario. And I visited uh, Camillo back in 2011 after buying this coffee for the first time. And I was buying this amazing bourbon from him. It was a stunning, stunning coffee. And I want to know more about the farm. And it was through another importer that I won't name, but if you wanna know, come see me at the end. and uh, these guys were only selling the bourbon. And I went to Camilla. I was like, you've got Geisha here, you've got Tipica, you've got red bourbon, yellow bourbon, why can't I buy these as well? He's like, well, the importer won't buy them. He says there's no market for them, he's no interest, it's not his thing, doesn't want to do it. I'm like, but I want to buy them. He says, well, I don't have any contracts with this guy, and like he's really screwing me on price too. Like, I... I Get much So the other people he sells to are Intelligentsia and Wataru Coffee in Japan. Now these guys pay big bucks. And this importer was paying him nothing. But it was getting it into a UK market. So I said to Camillo, well, why don't we just cut him out of the way? Let's just buy directly because that's a really good thing. And Camillo was very happy with that. I was very happy that I got all of these amazing coffees and we took out an importer that wasn't looking after the producer or adding any value at all. So, was this a good or an evil example of an importer? Well, I think it was evil. I think we can definitely go that it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't good for Camillo. It wasn't good for us. And actually, it wasn't very good for the importer. They were selling a coffee that was really good and not reaching its full benefit and not getting somebody to pay as much as they felt they could for it. So, I'm going to look at an exporter. Do we know what an exporter is? If, if, you, if you know what an exporter is, raise your hand. Okay, good. Now I can explain what an exporter is. So an exporter is somebody who is at origin, is at a producing country, has feet on the ground, has contacts, has warehousing, quite often has a mill, has a wet mill and a dry mill. So they're, they're adding some value in countries where lots of farms are small or producers don't have access to market or they don't have a chance to be able to to meet buyers like me so the one i want to talk about is bolivia and this is a perfect country for an exporter so most of the farms are five to ten hectares which is not big so they will produce i don't know maybe 50 to 100 bags a year they'll be very small producers this guy here uh, david Vilke, speaks no english at all and uh if Juan's still here, he'll prove that I don't speak any Spanish at all, because like, I can order a beer, and that's about it. Um, so this exporter introduces me to David, who is a subsistence grower. Every single penny this man makes, he makes through coffee. He doesn't have another source of income. Gabriel, he's a wealthy man. He has savings. You know, This guy, he doesn't have savings. In fact, David uh, only bought the farm because uh, 10 years ago, he lost his hearing while he was in a diamond mine um, and his hearing is atrocious. The first two years I visited him, he didn't even know who I was. So he was like, what's this guy doing here again, Jeez!" But the third year he thought he'd find out why I kept hanging around and wanting my photograph taken with him. Um, and the, the uh, exporter kind of explained to David that I was the guy that was paying him this great price for all of his coffee. When I went last year, David was like my biggest friend. He was like, Yay, let's go look at trees and let's go have photos. And he, he made me some lunch and we sat and had lunch with his daughter and his granddaughter and his wife. And we had a really lovely afternoon. And as we came away from the farm, I said to the exporter, like, surely he can get hearing aids. You know, like he can hear something. He's just, you know, hard of hearing. And they're like, well, we did actually give him the money to go and buy some hearing aids last year. And I was like, so where is it? Oh, his wife bought a satellite dish. (laughs) Okay. Um, You know, where they live He's pretty isolated. They don't have a lot of entertainment. I'm guessing the satellite dish is quite important, and it gave David a quiet life. Um, So then I suggested, why don't I buy him some hearing aids? Like, they're not that much. It's like $1,000. We'll buy a set of hearing aids. Um, So the next day... They phone up David's wife and say like, you know, Steve's offered to buy some hearing aids for David, but we'll go and buy them from the place and we'll get them to him. Um, And David got really upset. He was like, I don't want your charity. I don't want you to buy me some hearing aids. Um, You know, we've been given some money and we bought a satellite dish and it's just not right. So I was like, okay, well, you don't want me to buy them. How about if I get my customers to buy them? So how about if I get the guys that drink your coffee to buy them by paying a little bit more? And so we worked out on the back of a cigarette packet how much it would cost. And we worked out it would cost 11 pence per bag to buy David some hearing aids this year from all the coffee that we bought from him. So that's what we did. Uh, And I got a lovely email just before Christmas from David saying, can't wait till you come in August because I'll be able to hear you this time. It's amazing. Thank you. So like this is an exporter that breaks down the barriers between the producer and the, the buyer adds value to the chain. David has never processed his own coffee until this year. And he did that because he wanted to do it for me because he'd been introduced to the buyer who he was like, maybe I could do something. So he did a natural lot for the first time um, because the exporter showed him how to project- how to do his own coffee. So they've added value along the chain, not just once, but many, many times. Their support for him and their support for me. And uh, in 12 days time, I'll be on the farm with David again. So, is this a good or an evil example of an exporter? Well, I like to think it's a very, very good one. Uh, We've worked with the guys in Bolivia for six years. Um, Bolivian coffee, when we first started buying it, nobody bought. Nobody knew anything about Bolivia. It wasn't a coffee-producing country in most people's minds. Uh, 2012, we bought 2% of the entire coffee crop from Bolivia. 2%. Like, that's... A lot of bags, you'd think. It's not. It's tiny. It's like two containers. But we were out there, feet on the ground, working with an exporter that could add value for us and make that we could get to two containers. Um, so, a very good example of an exporter. So, for again, for every good there is bad, um, and this is a, this is me, this is Fat Steve when he was cupping at the Cup of Excellence in two thousand and nine, um, two thousand eight. Sorry and it was the first ever Cup of Excellence in Rwanda. It was an amazing honor to be asked to go and judge the competition out there. I had a really great time. I do like the way that guy's looking at me like, what is he doing? It's, um, yeah, it's really, really funny. But what happened that year was their first year of Cup of Excellence, and if you get a defect or if you get something that isn't good in a coffee in Rwanda, in, in any competition, sorry, it will be disqualified. It will be thrown out. Now, anybody who's ever tried Rwandan coffee at some point will have come across potato. Has anybody come across potato before show of hands? Yeah, kind of happens. So when we were cupping all of these coffees over and over again, you would find potato and it got thrown out. And there was one coffee that just blew my mind how amazing it was. It was just stunning. And it got through to the finals and on the final day, on the final cup, potato, disqualified, gone. So I kind of would like, this was the round table meeting afterwards uh, in Rwanda. And I was kind of asking everybody, who's this co-op? Do you know where this is from? Who exports this? And I managed to find the exporter. That isn't him, by the way, so we won't accuse him of being evil. Um, but I found the exporter, spoke to him. I was like, I want to buy this coffee, but there's two, re- two things I'm going to do. One, I want to pay a lot of money for it because it's amazing. But two, I need it by November. My container is leaving in November. If it's not here, I can't ship it. I was like, no problem at all, Steve. So we agreed a price, We shook hands, exchanged emails backwards and forwards. November approached, nothing. No coffee, no response, stopped responding to the emails, wouldn't respond to phone calls. So I'm like, okay, he sold it somewhere. Somebody's found it and loved it. That's fine. Come January, I got an email. Steve, coffee's ready. Ready to move it? I'm like, No. Got the sob story about, oh, you know, the co op needs the money, you know, we've got the coffee here, we've prepped it for you. So I decided to air freight it. Air freighting coffee is expensive, unecological, and a pain in the backside. But it was like, if we're going to get this coffee, that's what we have to do. So I said to the exporter, you're going to have to air freight it and you're going to have to organise it. I want it palleted, I want it wrapped, I want it strapped, I want it properly done. No problem, Steve. No problem at all. It arrived in Brussels Airport. Um, in loose sacks in the bottom of an aeroplane to which they threw onto the runway while it was raining and it sat there for three hours. Coffee arrived with me completely spoiled, completely ruined, absolutely awful and we would paid t- just as much for shipping as we had for the coffee. Just completely gone up in smoke. This was an exporter not adding value but getting in the way and not doing their job properly. So is this a good or an evil? Trust me, my bank manager thought it was a very evil uh, exporter and I, yeah, I do concur. If you don't mind, now I'm going to leave the good and the evil, because I'm going to talk about direct trade, my only way to heaven. So I'm going to talk about a coffee that is coming on in the fumbly on Thursday, Ger, is that right? Ish. Ish. Thursday, Friday. Drink lots of coffee tonight, and it'll come on Thursday. Um, and it's called, a, oh, he's looking at me. <sighs> <sighs> Kiwi Dad, Veja, Les Jocatales. No, it's completely wrong. I know. <laughs> Just. Oh, man. I told you my Spanish is awful. Like. <laughs> Go on, one. How do I say it? South American. Jocatales. Okay. Well, we're going to talk, call it Jocatales from now on. So. Um, this is a coffee that I found last year um, and that gentleman there is the 2012 Wilbur Easter Champion who actually helped me find it. And this guy here, um, the rather cool looking dude, baseball bat backwards, like, I just felt like an old man with my son, It was like yeah, great, um, but this is Alex um, and Alex, um, he's around about 22, 23 I think and his grandfather owns a farm and he's owned it for 50 years. And he's kind of seeing this specialty coffee thing going on. Farm's a beautiful location in Antigua, around about 1,400 meters above sea level, an amazing place. And Alex wanted to do something different with the coffee. And his grandfather's going, you'll never get a buyer. Your English isn't so good, and you don't know how to find them. So he teamed up, teamed up with Raul and said, like, I got oh, this great coffee. I'm going to do these really weird and funky processes with them. If you see here, this is on the roof of his uncle's house where he's honeying the coffee himself. So he's never processed coffee in his life. He went and saw a couple of people and spoke to them and then did that. Um, I wanted to buy the coffee if it was good, bad or indifferent. Like, I just love the story. I love the kid. I love the way that he really wanted to do something different. I loved his cheekiness of how much he asked for it as well. That was quite funny. Um, but... Alex, we took a gamble on, and last year we bought 22 bags blind. I didn't cup them, I didn't get a sample, I didn't get anything until pre-shipment samples when we'd already committed to buy. And it was like 22 bags. I don't know. That's I don't know. It's a good chunk of money. I'm sure it's a small family car. Um, and like it was scary, but we bought it. It was amazing. This year we bought everything from the farm because his grandfather this year let him process everything. But the problem was because he was doing it on the roof. This guy was uh, having to fund it himself. And because there was uh, like over 100 bags this year, he had to process it somewhere else. So he needed money to pre-finance the processing of it. So we sent him $20,000 blind on trust so he could process it this year um, as a down payment for some of the coffee and then the rest on delivery. Uh, as it turned out, he didn't quite have 120 bags because he still hasn't quite worked out how to count how many bags he'll end up with. And yeah, yeah, we ended up with about 70, but that's okay. Um, And uh, 15 of them have come to 3FE. Uh, There was one lot in particular I picked out because it was a smaller lot that really fit the profile of what we were looking for, something really sweet and sticky and big mouth feel. And it really does hit the spots. this is a fantastic example of direct trade at work. It's working with a producer to better himself, better the farm, and add value. So he's separating lots out. He's got Bourbons, we've got Tipicas, we've got Caturas, uh, red and yellow Bourbon, and uh, he's doing a really, really great job. Um, even if he does drive mental with his Facebook pictures of him with his, he's one of these like Italian, these uh, C- Central American guys who want selfies all the time. But he's a really good guy. Um, so this is, you know, our good example. But I really do have to talk about how direct trade isn't everything. Direct trade isn't amazing. And I want to go back to this guy. Now, I don't want this to say, that's why I've took the evil and the good away, because this isn't, this was just a relationship that didn't work. So uh, Camillo at Santuario, after we were buying from the importer, we bought a year directly from him and it went really well. Um, we used the coffee in the UK Barista Championships and he did really well. Um, in fact, it was in the World Championships last year from another company that buys it and he did really well. It's a delicious, tasty coffee. But for some reason, this relationship wasn't working. Like, we just didn't gel. Like, I love hanging out with Alex. I love hanging out with David Vilker. Like, these guys are fun to be around. They're like, they're really, we just, we gel. We get on, we coffee guys. We really get into it. With Camillo, it never really worked out. And then two years ago, I was meant to go and visit Camilo in Colombia. And what I do is I go to Bolivia. And then from Bolivia, I go to Colombia. So it's, that's my August visit time. And I spend 14 days there visiting lots of producers that we buy from from different regions. And uh, I'm sitting in the airport in La Paz, waiting to go to Colombia. Uh, to meet up with Camillo, and I get an email, sorry, Steve, can't meet up, got to go to Miami. It's like, wow. So I know that people in Latin America, when relatives are ill or you're sick, they go to Miami. Great healthcare, straight access, they can be seen in good, clean hospitals. And I'm like, well, I hope everything's okay, you know, something's obviously not good, completely understand, fine. No, no, I'm going on holiday. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, we were meant to go to, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. I'm like, Okay, so I spent four days in uh, Cali. And if you've ever been to Cali, it's a scary place. It's like the second most dangerous city in in South America. Um, It's pretty scary for a ginger-haired gringo who speaks very little Spanish to hang around. Um, But actually from this, we ended up finding an exporter, uh, and I went to Bogota, and that's who I'm going to see this year. And we've had some stunning coffees from Colombia the last... Uh, two years, Colin will testify, just some of the stuff we've had has been out the park good. I miss Santuario, and whenever I see it somewhere, I will always buy a bag of it for myself. Um, but it was a relationship that just didn't work. We weren't getting value from each other from it. We weren't getting along, and he obviously wasn't enjoying my company hanging around with him. can't think why, I'm awesome. But this was a great example of direct trade really not working. So, like, what's best? What is the way uh, to find great coffee? Well, first of all, I think it's really good to work with people who you like, who you trust. So the importers we work with, we really trust. Like, we know. We have a relationship where I can ask them for an open book on their prices. I'm really cool with them making money, because if they don't, they go out of business. Um, But I'm really cool to know what the producer gets. We work with exporters who add real value. Introduce us to people like David Vilke, Introduce us to the Colombian lots that we've been selling recently. This time I'm going to go and spend four days traveling around uh, Talima in Colombia. am going to have an amazing time going to meet some producers who are very small, like one, two hectares. Like tiny, tiny farms. But they're getting a route to market through an exporter. And there are direct trades, like Alex, that I really feel we can make a difference. Um, We can really make his coffee get better, but we can add value so we can afford to pay more money because we're having these unique and amazing lots. So what's the best way? Well, really, it just has to be about quality. It has to be what's on the cupping table. It's what's tasty. And then worrying about the other things afterwards. So worrying that the producer gets paid fairly, that everybody's getting treated properly. We have coffee that we've bought from importers in the past that the relationship's broken down with and then we've bought from an exporter and then we've just turned to buying directly. Like this is all part of the size of the way that we can buy coffee. Being the size that has been is perfect at the moment to buy lots because we're one, two, three containers from each country, lots of different lots and lots of really strong, powerful relationships with with growers. Um, Growers who we've lost touch with because for whatever reason, like with Camillo, we we lost touch with a guy called Ernesto from El Salvador. Um, If anybody remembers La Lujon from the early days of 3FE, like an amazing coffee. But Ernesto got, he, he, his coffee was used by the World Barista Champion in 2011, got courted by lots of other roasters, didn't have enough to sell to us, so we were like, yeah, okay, that's sad, but we'll keep in touch. This year, actually today in the warehouse in Stafford, the deliveries just arrived of La luzon coming back. So it's about managing relationships that are not just current, but ones that might turn into relationships in the future, but ones that have gone that might come back. And who knows, one day we might have Camillo's coffee back, uh, and that would be pretty awesome. Um, I know I've talked quickly. It's kind of what I do. Um, but if you've got any questions or anything you want to ask, thank you very much, and thank you for listening. Yeah. Cheers. Any questions? Always communication. I mean, the thing is, is it like if we can't buy everything from a farm, we have no right to expect any exclusivity. And what happens is, a lot of people will look at our lists. We've seen um, a lot of importers who've recently come on the scene actually approaching producers we buy from because we've made names for farms. Like that's what we do in 3fe and in has been. We we make them you know well known. We we sing about the producers, we sing about the farms. So, yeah, you know, you have to expect that there may be in some places, but we just ask for communication, you know, it, that's what happens. But what, ha- what we always demand is that we get first look. So we get first pick, we get to choose which lots we want. We'll separate day's pickings so we can actually go and see those coffees before anybody else does because we pay more money than most people do. So we, we get that privilege. So no, wh- wh- I mean it depends from place to place, so um, in Colombia for instance, I did 130 cuppings on my first time there when I didn't get to see Camillo. I did 130, 130 different coffees in one day and I picked out five. Five that I liked from them and was like, okay, I want those days pickings, I want those coffees. Um, but somewhere like um, let's think uh, El Salvador, I have a strong, established, long-standing relationships with people that every year, as long as the quality's there, they will build a lot, especially for me. And more and more, we're buying everything from farms. Like, if if we can, that's what we try and do. Because that way you can have um, a real impact on the producer. You know, you are driving where they go with quality, with the price you're paying. If you're picking up 10 bags, it means nothing. Like, you, that you can't have an impact on their quality. Sure, it's nice, it's good. You know, it's nice you have that relationship with the grower. But you can't make a difference when you buy everything from a farm with like with David. Like his quality year on year gets better and better. The fact that he's doing his own processing this year, last year was amazing. Like he's never been motivated to do that, but because we're him this price, he's now motivated to. Because we paid him more for that far, that farm lot than we did what the, they they did at the mill because it was a better cup. Because he was caring and making sure he was doing as good a job as he could. lots and lots of it so the question was how's initial contact made with producers and it is really hard huh? Grind what grinder
0: what
1: no. <laughs> grinder um, initial con- so for instance with kishwara was through an importer um, but it, that was through cup of excellence originally we used cup of excellence as a speed dating for producers it was like let's go on a hot date with a cup of excellence lot and then let's buy after that so uh, El Salvador Lafani, uh, Guatemala El Bosque, Nicaragua Limoncillo, Brazil Cachoeira have all come through Cup of Excellence introductions. And what happens when you turn up to a country and buy from one producer? They go, Do you want to meet my mate? He's really cool. You know, well, let's go and look at his farm. Um, the Guatemala one was with Raul. So Raul won the WBC. I emailed him afterwards and said, oh, You must know loads of people. Like, I've never been able to crack Guatemala. Can you help me? And he put me in touch with San Sebastian, with his Jocotales, with um, uh, El Limon from last year. Um, like some really great farms that we've started working with just through one guy. So talking to people, you know, you kind of, you turn up somewhere as well sometimes and you just kind of take your chances. Like when you were, when you were starting out with
0: the old, uh, direct trade thing, oh.
1: First person I think was so the first container I moved on my own was Brazil, and we worked with a group of farmers in Bahia um, from Chiapadia Diamantina. Did I pronounce that one okay? Yeah, no, no, yeah. Um, geez, screwed up again. Um, it's Portuguese anyway, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> um, and that was through somebody who was living in the UK who was trying to put people in contact with roasters. They didn't work out, actually, we don't work with them now, although we still keep in contact. Um, th- they, like, their quality was just, it wasn't keeping up with what we were hoping for, and they wanted more. During the price rise, they wanted more money, and it was, yeah, we, we really didn't. Yeah, we, we had a long-term plan, and then they changed it, so it didn't work. But that was the first one. Um, but, like, Nicaragua was Cup of Excellence. Like, I did the first Cup of Excellence I did in 2005, was I met a guy called Erwin Maresch, and he's like one of my closest friends now. He comes to the UK regularly. I've been out to him every year for the last five six years. Um, you know, we th- it just it kind of just happens organically when you go to a producing country, you meet somebody, uh, you know somebody, and a lot of it has just been trial and error. Um, and the promise of you know if we buy this year, I promise we'll buy more next, and I'll promise I'll buy more the year after, and the and we've we followed up on that promise every year. Um, and if we buy from a place directly, we have to buy a whole container. That's the rule we have. We have to fill a container, then we're serious buyers. If we're going to go out there and buy 10 bags, I don't want to be that guy. I, don't, I think it, it lets the producer down. Um, and it really isn't direct trade. You know, they're not getting the benefit from it. Cool. Anybody, Grinder questions? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so the question was about, like, uh, do we ever say that, you know, we have to break a relationship? And the Brazil one I was talking about was was a perfect one. Like, I really love those guys. I really got, like, I went and spent weeks and weeks with them. And traveling in Brazil is hard because it's so big. And there's so much driving and so many flights. And it was just really, really hard. But the quality wasn't there. It was just, like, the first year was amazing. Terramatta was, like, one of the, the coffees that blew my mind. And then... All of a sudden it just fell off a cliff and they were talking like bingo numbers. They got carried away. Like people were coming in and like, cause again, so, so Judas that year won Cup of Excellence. So this swarm of buyers came into Mantina. Sorry, I've done it again. Um, <laughs> um, like swarmed in and started offering crazy money. Uh, so he, he just broke it for us. And we had to say, this isn't working. We can't, we can't do it. We've had some years are better than others. But, you know, if the general quality is there, we want to keep that relationship there. We'll work with them. And we'll also feed back white. We didn't think it was so good. And then we'll kind of go and spend time with them and say, well, what are you doing? Um, Thinker Argentina. Has anybody tried that coffee from El Salvador? Like, it's, it's an amazing coffee. But this year, he lost 90% of his crop through leaf rust, bad management, bad husbandry, uh, not knowing what he was doing. Like, he's feeling his way at growing coffee. So this year, we bought every single bean from him. It's about 90 bags. Um, but I also took him to Honduras, Nicaragua, um, and uh, where else was there? Honduras, Nicaragua, somewhere else, can't remember. Um, to go and meet other producers. So I wanted him to go and learn about how he could market his coffee better, how he can look after his plants better, introducing to people that were able to help him improve his farm. And make sure that he gets his yield back. So yeah, th- you know that's a relationship that is so close, but actually in trouble if the coffee doesn't get better. But he's come back now, so excited and with the knowledge of how to make his coffee better that actually he's now become president of the mill, and he's helping everybody at the mill make their coffee better. Um, for sure it's about many many and also what we did this year we flew him to the uh, london coffee festival and he came and hung out with us for the week there at barista competition so he could see that side of it um and again helping his knowledge helping introduce him to different people um so he can learn more Um, and hopefully that coffee next year is going to be phenomenal um and i have no doubt it will be because they really are putting in place lots and lots of plans um we've got some exciting things that we experiments we're going to be doing and it's, uh, it's really exciting. So that's a, a relationship that's in trouble, but you have to work at it. You can't just go, actually, no, I don't want your coffee now. There's a, there's a lot of people in direct trade that do that. Um, for me, I kind of try and get married, not just have an affair. So. Going to questions. Jeff. <laughs> yeah. LEDs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so actually if I can flick back to actually no, it doesn't matter. I'll flick If the the ones at the burrs, if you can find them. Um so one of the <laughs> What is next? <laughs> Put the safe search on. Um the okay, so remember the se- the picture showed you all the burrs? Uh, one of the birds uh, w- w- during the testing stage. Yeah, so one of the birds, uh, which I think, I think was the this one here. The uh, next one across, that one. I think it was. Uh, it was kind of a darker shade. Um, and they're all different alloys of different metals, and I have no idea what they were. Um, but one of them, w- what we did as part of it, <laughs> can someone tweet that actually? Because this pisses Cosimo off no end. Um, so. Uh, what we did is that we tested them individually. So we had Willem Davies in Lo- in London or wherever he was at that particular time. James Hoffman also in London, in a different place. Uh, Fritz Storm was in Denmark, and I'm in Dublin. And then they had they're testing them in Italy as well. And we were all using different coffees. And then we would not tell each other what we thought of each bursa. set. And then when we'd meet up, we'd go, "Well, which one did you like?" Because, like, any sort of collusion in that process would taint the whole, you know, testing. We needed to be independent of each other. And one week we went back and we arrived in the room and I went, well, this set is brilliant, isn't it? And everybody went, no. And I was like, really? And it was like, we'd been using it in the shop, was very happy with it. And I was like, couldn't figure out why. So I was like, well, I, well, I've been having great results. And I'd made some extraction tests and, you know, taken some numbers. And they were like, nope, not a chance. And then Laro turned up and he said, uh, well, what were you using in the shop? And I think it was actually La Luzon, the, the natural process. It was La on El Salvador, and he goes, oh, it wasn't natural. I was like, yeah, it wasn't natural. He goes, well, there you go. That birth set's pretty good for naturals. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, naturals are more brittle. They grind differently. Everything about the way the roof is different. So that birth set is, is, is very good for naturally processed coffees. And I was like, how do you know this? He's like, I don't know. No one's ever asked me before. I just know it. And what that said to me and what there's potential for is that if you go back to the other one, that one, uh, at some stage, given the right amount of research and the right amount of work that goes into all this, at some stage, uh, you could say, well, what's the coffee? I'll say, well, it's a Costa Rican coffee. It's grown at 1,400 meters. It's a, a yellow honeyed coffee, and it's a couture. And you're going to go, well, okay, well, we better use this burr set then. And that you would have a burr set that would be applicable to a certain type of coffee. And that you would change your burr sets just like a chef changes, is knives. nice? Like, like a old carousel thing? Yeah, like that one. Yeah, exactly, like a like the optometrist machine that spins around or something, yeah. But that would be... An African cup. Exactly, yeah. And process specifically, I think process has got the biggest impact on it, but the density and the size of the beans is crazy. Because like, anyone that switched from like a washed couture to a natural pacamara, is just like it's like 12 steps on an, on an anthem or something. So it's, that's where there's so much learning to be done, like an incredible amount of learning. So that was pretty exciting and really daunting at the same time. Andrew, hi Andrew. I haven't seen you in ages. (laughs) Good. How are you? (laughs) Oh, you. It's funny because like, what we wanted to do, like uh, at the start, we had, um, they were like, oh, well, so what do you want to do? And I, got, I drew this picture of like, this, I want to like, change the grinder so it works. And they were like, whoa, slow down. That's, no, that's not going to happen. And we were like, oh, well, but I want it. And they were like, well, how this process works is that to make, to mass produce a piece of equi- equipment, you have to, you have to you know, like, create a mold and, a, and a casting. And like, this costs like millions. Like, this is a lot of money. And to just try something like that is not going to work. So what we need to do is that we need to take all your problems and try to solve as many as possible in, in the c- in the current guise of what w- what we have. And then when that works, then we can afford to apply the same process to a brand new grinder. Because we can't just build a new mold and a new casting for this. So the first incarnation of the grinder, I didn't expect to solve many problems. What we hoped to do was to create a grinder that was that was at least comparable with the market leaders because, like, I've always been a huge uh, proponent of, like, everything that you Novosiminelli know, do and I, I love their work, they love them as people and they've uh, they've been really great supporters of me and I've never used their grinders, like, ever because they were awful. Um, and just getting a grinder that they built to my coffee bar was, to me, was a win. Uh, but I didn't think that we'd be able to solve as many problems as we did. The process of grinding is nightmare so even if we did have a massive budget and be able to do whatever we wanted with it i'm not sure how much closer we can get um so yeah i'm pretty happy with what has come up you know and like what we're seeing around the world is that it's it's working like it really is working because that's that's the dangerous thing but actually it didn't hit home until we we tested it at that show where they launched it It was like oh wait it works was a it was uh, a uh, pretty amazing Yeah, I remember Monica marching back upstairs and saying, take your fucking grinder and slam it on the table and putting the other ones back on again. So I haven't forgotten that one. I, I think the
1: other thing with the grinder as well is that the event that was at the, the World Barista Championships this year was phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, that's always a good test of something that's fixed lots of the problems that were there. Um, like every other competitor had got one and the ones who hadn't, um, they couldn't get one. So we've got a waiting list of like, we've got back order of 30 waiting to come. They just can't produce them quick enough because people want it and everybody who uses one who gets behind a bar with one like falls in love with it because it fixes those things that are the biggest pain in the backside for a barista at a machine you know it lets you focus on the coffee so I think a lot of the coffee comes the the coffee's tasting better from them is that yep sure the grinder's doing a great job but the barista has one less thing to worry about so they can actually approach the things you know and I'm not paid by Simonelli so
0: (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that's that's it because like I think um the people working in the bar see the benefit of it because like before we were pre-dosing everything and using an ek-43 which is extremely accurate and very good quality but it just took forever um and like craig will tell everybody about how difficult that was but we we're committed to doing it the right way and it meant to queue out the door and angry customers sometimes and that just wasn't we're, we're doing a pretty good job of doing that but we couldn't get any busier like we just it wasn't going to work we either needed to charge twice as much for coffee uh, or else just stop doing it so the big thing is that with a coffee grinder that works like this. You then get to practice, or you then get to start doing the things that really matter in a coffee shop, like saying hello to your customers and cleaning tables, and you know making sure their drinks are made in time. And that's really the the important stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, that's that's the big win for us. Bruno.
1: So so, um, there are two things that I insist on when I'm buying coffee, apart from the, like the Jocotalis, I still can't say it right. Um, (laughs) I'm gonna call it all sorts of things. That one we bought blind, but, like, what I will do is I'll go meet a producer. Yeah, sure, he might put a cupping on. We might go to an exporter and do a cupping with them. I will make no decision while I'm in a beautiful country surrounded by amazing people who are becoming really good friends. Like, if it tastes good in Stafford on a Tuesday evening in the rain, it tastes good all the time. But if it tastes good in a producing country while you're having great fun and, you know, sun's on your back and it's lovely, like, you can't make those kind of decisions. So, sure, we'll cup and we'll make... Maybe an even statement of intent. You know, give samples. We'll let you know next week when once we're back. Um, but also, like y- y- you know, you got pre pre shipment samples that you've got to approve, um, and then arrival samples to make sure that they match the pre shipment samples. So we've got box upon box of like samples of stuff that's arrived uh, and stuff that was sent as pre ship. So they have to match up, and if they don't match up, then you know something's gone wrong. But I've only ever had one occasion where I got shipped something different to what we agreed on. Uh, and that, that was a Kenyan auction lot. And I'm fairly convinced it wasn't, it was just a, it was a mix up. It wasn't the same coffee for sure. Um, and we rejected it. And um, we got an insurance claim on our, because we insure everything that's shipped. And we got an insurance payout and it was fine. But every other one, we get the coffee we want because we trust each other. We work together. It's about, you know, if they screw me over this year, I ain't going back next. Um, You know, you you only do it once and then, you know, the the, the trust is gone. So we never really happens, but yeah. Well, uh, again, it will depend, but you'll cup. And and normally they'll ask what your copying parameters are. So, you know, I'm 12 grams, 180 mil, uh, 93 degree water. You know that's what I'll ask them for, and it will give me an idea of what the coffee tastes like. But when I get back, I'll do it with my cupping bowls, with my cupping lab, with my grinder, with my setup. So everything is treated exactly the same. Um, it will always be green samples. They're trying to fob you off with roasted samples. It's like no, there's, no, that's fine. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah, it's the relationship that you have to. Yeah, there has to be a lot of trust in there as well. Um, and everybody we work with, we work with the following year. You know. of the time, um, because that trust is there. I also quite often have somebody on the ground as well who will help. So they will be a friend who will run backwards and forwards, try and sort and fix problems. Maybe somebody who's consolidating the container for us or, or whatever. So, yeah.
0: the second question is the most permanent one. it's it's it, i was talking to the sales director the other day and he said he got in trouble at the last board meeting because they're s- they're selling so many they can't meet the demand um so currently we've like 15 in order and we've been, we're going to i think waiting for 3 months for them now hopefully if if even that uh they retail i think the list price and i'm open to correction this is somewhere around 2100 i think um around there i'm not too sure uh, Jan does all that, and so uh, that's that's the list price of it. Which is, uh, I don't like talking about other grinders because the people that make those grinders aren't here to defend themselves, and if I say nice things, they're not here to hear that nice things as well. So, but uh, the comparable grinders in the marketplace, uh, uh, I think it's three. I suppose that you could talk about comparable grinders, and they're all more expensive. Um, but what I found was that we did some quick calculations. Uh, an Excel sheet with you know a, a decent price for coffee the amount of waste that you expect to save in a conservative basis in a cafe that does about 30 kilos a year, and the cost of the grinder will be paid for twice over at least. Uh, to, and then what you're also getting is you get faster service, you're getting better service, and th- that's worth the investment in itself. Um, so like we're, it's, it's difficult to push people to spend a lot of money on a grinder because people always focus on the espresso machine. But like, I think for a long time, like we've always said to people to spend money on a, on a decent grinder, you know, and like espresso machine, most espresso machines are quite stable, like 2.1 of a degree Celsius. And like, that's kind of, it's done. Like when you get to the higher end of things, you can have your preferences and stuff, but a lot of espresso machines do what they're supposed to do. Grinders don't, grinders are an absolute nightmare. So like it's, it's a massive investment for a lot of people when they're starting a coffee shop, but it's, it's a worthwhile one. Uh, but yeah, we're hoping they're, they're trying to, increase production because it's just i think i don't even know if i'm allowed to say this i didn't tell you but they uh they i think they they hope to sell 600 this year and they sold that within the first three months and it's exceeded that ridiculously since then yes yeah.
1: can, can i answer jer's question from earlier as well about what seeing what's next in the future like with grinders and things um, for me, once they sort out this production issue of getting enough out of the machine, I see a lot of EK43s on eBay. <laughs> not <bad>. I'm not, <laughs> a, fan. I'm not <laughs> a fan. Anyone else? No
0: questions? I'm not sure if I need to talking about this, but you recognize one of the problems with dose consistency. Yeah. How did you get on with that? Um, yeah, so the dose consistency is obviously a massive issue. Um, we... On our old grinder, when it's busiest, when it was busier, uh, we would get, if we were aiming for 18, sometimes we would get 19, sometimes we get 17. So there's a two gram shift. Uh, most of the time, the grinder is working within a, like a one gram. And I think it, like, it, it's a lot narrower than that as well. So the guys at the shop will, will, you know, they weigh everything in and weigh everything out. Um, I'm not sure, Craig can probably answer this better than I can. So how many times do you would just send that dose? How many times did you adjust your dose one time in in like in a hundred times how many times did you adjust your dose where you weren't happy with what it gave you yeah yeah, so it's like it's still we're not getting we're not at the stage yet where you could get kind of like say I want you know nineteen point three grams but you're you're definitely gonna get within you know half a gram either way of that the vast majority of the time. I would say it's impossible. Like, is it the only way you're going to get to do it is, is to build a mechanism that would pre-weigh beans, grind them, and then find a way to ensure that you get everything out of there. Make sense? Like, and at one stage in one of the grinders we did have, we were testing, like, blowing air through burr sets to see if it would clear the coffee through every time. And, but like, you see, all of these things are expensive. And then the other thing is that you have to, most of the time when, gr- when grinders are sold, you have like three people to go through. And each of those people has to make a margin. So by the time you put in something that costs 100 euro, the retail price of that ends up being 500 or 600 euro. Uh, just with taxes and import duties and shipping and all these sorts of things. And that's the thing we, we d- I, I didn't realize at the start is that like every minute adjustment has a like a, a massive effect on the final price. Um, so uh, issuing a new, uh, what once you've built that trust to people to say that this one works extremely well, like to my mind works better than any grinder in the market uh, at, at doing this in terms of consistency, that if we then have the the funding to create a brand new casting and molding for a grinder um, in a whole different guise with a new mechanism that people will trust that and buy into it. But it's, it's again, it's just about making it, it's affordable. It has to be affordable. That's the other thing from like the consumer's perspective, as well as, th- the company's perspective, because they have to, m- they make money from sending machines. That's what they got to do. So, I don't know, like, I- pre dosing on an EK forty three is definitely more accurate in terms of your dosing, because you're pre dosing everything and, and grinding it through. But you're getting more of a win back in terms of workflow and uh, and efficiency of the other one. The what sorry? The hopper. The hopper. Yeah. Yeah. So our old grinder was like, you have to put at least keep at least 700 grams in there because it keeps a consistent weight on there. So the gravity is there. The auger on the inside is that kind of screw thing that spins. That pulls the, the coffee in and that keeps it a lot more consistent. And it negates the need for using weight there because it, it, it overpowers that. Like to the extent that like, you will come down to your last 100 grams or so and not even notice. Whereas before, if you ran below 700 grams in your hopper, um it would start getting very inconsistent where like i'd walk into the shop and be like fill that hopper now like, again it got to the stage where sometimes you'd have to fill a hopper even like 10 minutes before you close and then have to rebag the stuff just to keep that weight consistent so the that auger has had a massive impact um so uh, there are people that want a bigger hopper anyway just because they're busy uh so you can get an extended hopper that you, i saw one in china that was like this tall uh so if you want that you can have it um and then the other, actually, the other thing that we've been kind of like, I get in trouble for this because it's, it's kind of a design fault, but the, um, the lid on it is very difficult to lift on and off. So if you take this, the if you take this slip like this and then put it in here, you can slide it back and forward, and that's the best way to refill it. But every time I tell something like that, the sales manager is like, don't say that. <laughs> so uh, I didn't tell you that. Well yeah, the all but all these little things like i every country I go to there's people saying, Oh, this is wrong and this is wrong and then we get to feed back, back to the factory. And this is the really important thing because nobody's ever done this before, there's never been a dialogue. So you, you kind of have that sort of breakage in the line, so you don't actually have the the beans over the blades. Yeah. Is, is is it is it uh, making more system that it actually sucks on the, the it so doesn't have that sort of a big like thing, but, like a Well it uh, the pressure doesn't, you don't need the pressure anymore because the auger's there. Yeah, the auger just pulls everything in. So instead of waiting, w- relying on gravity, it's it's pulling everything in. So it means you don't really need it anymore. And it's uh, the other thing, it actually reduces the noise as well because the other one kind of acted like a, an amplifier because it's it's amplifying the noise of the grinder through it. Um, and th- this one is more quiet because of that and also because the, the motor is built onto dampeners and on rubber feet as well. And uh, we said this to them and they were like, they were like, why do you want it to be quiet? And I'm like, well, like if I'm having coffee, I don't want to kind of <laughs> And they're like, oh, okay. Well, that's very easy to solve. And you're like, well, why didn't you solve it before? And like, well, no one ever said anything to us. And it, well, this is how grinders are made that like, they go, okay, let's design a grinder. And they design it. And then they spend all the money on the castings. And then they bring it to market and go, you know what I mean? So it was like, well, why don't we get involved at the start? And they're like, oh, that might work. Yeah, that's a good idea. So, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the buzz of the coffee shop is a nice noise. I listen to it on earphones when I'm on the Lewis. No, I don't really hear <laughs> <laughs> But the uh, it's a nice sound and like that atmosphere, like everybody loves that. Like that's Yeah. a study about that. Yeah, they learn more because they have so much. Yeah. I well imagine. <laughs> Andrew again? Yeah, like what we found, we did look at this a lot. And this is one of the things where we went to the professors and we said, like, well, this is what's happening. And they were like, well, prove it. And they were, everything we said to them, they're like, what you're seeing is it's a, you're mixing up, like, causation and correlation. It's not the same thing. So, like, for instance, we said, well, like, when, a, when the room heats up, and there's more uh, humidity in the room, the co- shots go faster. And they're like, well, how do you know this? We said, well, because we see it every day. And like, well, how does it happen? I said, well, in the morning we dial in, shots are fine. The shop fills up with people, the temperature in the room goes up, the humidity increases, and the shots go faster. And they're like, well, is, are you making more coffee then? It's like, yeah, well, the room is full. And they say, well, your grinder's getting hotter, and your ground coffee is getting hotter. And that's why the shots are getting faster. So you, we're seeing what we thought was was the cause, but it actually wasn't at all. It was just it was just the kind of applying pocket science to it. And they did testing on the, uh, the they have a, a chamber where they can test it at different humidity and moisture levels, and there is an impact, but it's not substantial. Um, and again, like, uh, I think half the room here is probably worked at Coffee Angel at some stage. So if you're working down the river, when it starts to rain the humidity level changes and it's Ireland so it, it's sunny and it's raining and it's snowing and this changes all the time um but like what i was seeing uh, when i was working there was that it wasn't it wasn't completely linear with how the weather was changing uh, what it was actually happened is you're busy in the morning you've a quiet period and you're busy at lunchtime and often you just equate that with the temperature changing throughout the day or or other factors like that so yeah we did look at it but the The research that they showed proved that that the moisture level had a much smaller impact than than what we previously thought. High five, Bruno. Any more questions? One more? Uh, If I didn't develop grinders, what other area would I look at? Uh, If we could do away with roasters, that would be pretty good. Uh, well, yeah, I would say scales and drip trade, but um, that's hopefully a few months away. Um, so Victoria Arduino are launching one, and I believe San Remo are launching one as well, and perhaps Lamarzoco as well. Um, that will that will be incredible. That it, it it's strange because a lot of these things get to a stage where coffee becomes very automated, and some people will say, well, like if this happens, then. Like, James Hoffman from Square Mile Coffee was developing the machine with the, with the, the scales. And we, I was involved in the one with the, with the grinder. And we were doing a show in Seattle, and somebody said, well, like, it's getting to the stage where, like, anyone can make coffee. And I said, well, like, I'd be confident of going to a coffee trade show and dialing the machine in. Myself, you know, James can do the machine. I'll do the grinder until we're both happy with it. And we'll stand there and get people who've never made coffee before in their lives to serve not the best espresso, but drinkable espresso for a week and it can be done. If it's tuned in properly, we can do that, and we're approaching that level. So the guy said to me, well, like, that's kind of scary because now you're approaching a level where coffee is just touch button, and you don't need the skill, you don't have the craft and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know like, if it's, it's, like, it's an enjoyable process, but I'm not sure that that's such kind of like an end of world experience because like, if, if you go to a nice restaurant and the waiter comes and he opens the bottle of wine, which is just pulling a cork out and he pours you a glass and you enjoy it. You don't go, you didn't make that wine. You just opened the bottle. You're a fraud. You know, it's, it's there's no process in there. Like if I, I don't go home every day and, and say to my wife, oh, you should have seen the tamp I did today. It was amazing. It's like the, the what's enjoyable for me. It was amazing you should have seen it. It was the, um what's enjoyable for me is, is meeting people and uh, making them coffee that they enjoy drinking. And if that means I press a button and it's delicious, what's the problem? So. But aren't you just keeping the last part of the thing that keeps saying part of the chain at the very last? No, because your job then would be to pick the best coffees and serve customers and make them have a nice experience. Well, you could argue that's what you do now, because like, you don't get to talk to customers and As much as you want to, like people always say, oh, it's good to engage customers at the machine. But any time I'm working on a machine, which is rarely now, admittedly, but it's uh, the last thing I want to do is talk to customers and I'm busy because you've got coffees to make.
1: Quite like the idea of getting rebaristas. That's
0: good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a difficult. I don't know. I don't know. But like, what I do know is that if you can make coffee better, then it will benefit everybody. I hope. hope Yeah. (laughs) Andrew again. Well, in my experience, roasting... No, Do you want to take this one? Or? No?
1: Okay. I, I think consistency is a big problem with roasting, and I'm not quite sure like how we get over that one. Well, we haven't got any machine manufacturers that are excited enough to kind of get a bunch of roasts in a room and go, we want to talk about profiles. <laughs> um, I, I Consistency is a big thing. We've been working on it a lot at 3FE in the last couple of weeks because of... Um, Uh, pizza deserting us. We've had to train up some new new staff. Yeah, yeah. So I feel the same. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so yeah, so we've been doing lots of lots of cupping, lots of kind of, you know, quality testing. So why is this slightly different? Hey, can we slightly improve this? What can we do? But unfortunately, roasting is very much pocket science um, because it's all about, you know, personal preference. It's about, uh, you know, what what you're perceiving compared to somebody else. uh, you can measure consistency with Argotrons and with, you know, Cropster and all these other tools that are available, but actually I really don't like them. I think it's much better about, I, I kind of want to keep it artisan. I don't want to push buttons like you, you barista lot. Um, I'm quite happy being uh, at the machine and going, yeah, it's ready to drop. Why are you doing that? Well, because it's ready. Um, <laughs> so there's a little bit of both.
0: This means we can have a beer. Uh, just finally, uh, thank you all very much for coming. Uh, we really did not expect so many people to turn up, so it's uh, it, it's really great. Uh, we'd like to thank Jer for organizing all this. And uh, Sideshow Bob as well there in the corner for organizing all this, all the recording as well. <laughs> Um, and Luca and Ashling, and everybody at the Fumbly for hosting, and um, thank you all very much for coming. And it's uh, been wonderful. Yeah. Two errors, yeah. Two errors on the button as well. That's good. Yeah. <laughs>